everyone. Welcome to episode 154 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. We achieved a big goal we want to share with everybody. We did. We had our second quarter promotion of Patreon and we hit our target thanks to you. We have 60 Patreon supporters now. We really appreciate it. We want to say hello and welcome to new Patreons, Christina and Cheryl. Thank you both so much. Appreciate it. And we want to remind you that another way you can support the Book Cougars is to purchase books through bookshop.org. Yeah, that's a great way to do it. We link to bookshop.org from our show notes to make it easy to do that. And again, they do support independent bookstores all over the country and then also the Book Cougars. Yes, and we thank you for buying books that way. Yeah, and if you're interested in participating in our next read-along, Two Old Women by Velma Wallace, you can purchase that through bookshop.org. That would be awesome. Yeah, we actually have, I think, what do they call them, Chris? Shop? I mean, it's our shop, but then there's lists. Yeah. That's what it is. And we actually have a read-along list there. So it shows all of the books we've ever done as read-alongs. And typically, the newest book shows up first. Mm -hmm. So that one is there for your buying pleasure. Yeah, and for those of you who haven't explored bookshop.org yet, I should say like what you can do if you're just going to the site straight up without clicking on anything, you just go to bookshop.org and then put in book cougars. And then you're going to see a bunch of books with cougars that come up. But you want to select the option for bookshops or people. And then it'll take you to our page. That's pretty obvious. We have our picture on it. The first time I was on bookshop.org, it was a little learning curve for me just to to get things right. Yeah. And so if you create your own account for purchasing, you can pick either a specific independent bookstore that also gets the bookstore portion of your purchase, or you can set it up where just they send it and spread it across the bookstores that are participating with bookshop.org. Yeah. It's a low pressure shopping situation. It is totally. <laughs> <laughs> and just to remind people of the upcoming read along, the Zoom discussion is Sunday, May 15th, 7pm Eastern time. We still have spots available. Email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. And then we will be recording on May 18th for episode 156. So get questions to us by May 17th. And as always, you can participate on the Goodreads thread as well. And all of this is in the show notes at bookcougars.com. So, right, Emily, so what are you currently reading? I have started our buddy read of Death on the Nile by Agatha Christie. Yay. We're doing this with our mystery man, John Valeri, because, you know, it's a mystery. It seemed appropriate. And I've never read an Agatha Christie. So there's also a new Kenneth Branagh movie that's out. I think it's available for streaming now. It is. It is available for streaming I haven't watched it yet. I think John and I have both watched it. So we're going to be discussing that. I have the hard copy in my hands. And then I also am listening to the audiobook. And I got the version with Kenneth Branagh and John Moffat. So I started the audio and then I decided I wanted to really start it with reading with my eyeballs first. Mm -hmm. So I started it this morning. I'm really enjoying it. You know, she is the most published author. Is that true? Oh, yeah. She has sold more books than anyone else in the world. I think maybe only Shakespeare might. Shakespeare in the Bible yeah, is what yeah. it said in these notes in this book. And I was just floored by that. So I feel kind of appalled that I've never read her and I'm excited that this buddy read is encouraging me to do so. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm so glad you are. 
that will be my currently reading book later tonight. Right on. And just so everyone knows, we're going to be discussing this on episode 155 with John. Yeah. So you still have a couple weeks to read it. Right. And this one is not, there's not a Zoom component to this one. I guess we should clarify and say like our read-alongs are for the whole Book Cougars community and on Zoom with everyone who wants to participate. And then the buddy reads are just usually things that we do together, kind of um, spur the moment type things. Yeah, and we do have a section on our Goodreads group page that has buddy reads. Like when Chris and I did those big summer books, we did buddy reads for those. And we've got this one and then Maud Martha, which we're going to talk about coming up. Yeah. Wow. Speaking of big book summer, I'm starting to kind of put together a list of potentials. Ooh, I already know mine. I know. And Emily's being tight-lipped about it. I've been teasing her for a few weeks. It's going to be so (laughs) anticlimactic when I say what it is. Well, I'm looking forward to that. So, Emily, what have you just read? Well, I finished the audiobook of Hungry Heart, Adventures in Life, Love, and Writing by Jennifer Weiner. This is narrated by her. It was published in 2016. You know, I liked the first half a lot better than the second half. Part of what happened in the second half, there was a whole... I think it was a chapter. Again, I was listening to it on audio, but of just of her tweets about reality television, which for some people would probably be really cool. I don't watch reality television, so I thought it was just really monotonous and annoying, to be honest with you. (laughs) But then she also kind of started to jump around in time where you started to feel like, hmm, I wish they had edited it a little bit. You know, there were some redundancies like, oh, these are essays that she wrote at different times in her life. So it just was part memoir at the beginning. And then the second half kind of felt like essays. It was kind of odd. But the one takeaway I will say is she really considers herself to be an activist. And that really comes out in like her tweets, she's gotten herself into some hot, deep water. Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate that about her. Mm -hmm. You know, she doesn't have to do that. But she will do it about both her supporting her community of female authors with contemporary fiction, and also Planned Parenthood, things like that. She feels very strongly about it. And she uses her author platform to be an activist. So that part of the book I did really appreciate. Very cool. Yeah, she was really um, kind of a spearhead, what, 10, 15 years ago, with how people were putting down women's letter chiclet, as they called it. Um, She was very vocal against people putting down women's writing and dismissing it. Yeah, and also just how much more attention was paid to male writers and them getting reviewed over and over and over again. Yeah. So I did enjoy it. I just felt like it went a little long and wasn't quite seamless. Like it just felt like it was two different books. Interesting. Again, it's called Hungry Heart, Adventures in Life, Love, and Writing by Jennifer Weiner. Well, I finished The Children on the Hill by Jennifer McMahon. I talked about it last episode a bit. This book comes out the day that this podcast goes live. So it's a new book from Gallery Scout Press. And Jennifer McMahon, I've read several of her other books in the past. She's from Vermont. Her books are usually, I think they all are set in Vermont, and they're creepy. They deal with creepiness that could be Vermont, the woods, and this book in particular deals with monsters. It was inspired by Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and the whole idea of who is the monster, the creature being made or the one creating the monster. 
Because that's the thing about Shelley's Frankenstein. When people first read it, it's very different from all the movie adaptations. It's more philosophical. Dr. Frankenstein is more the monster than the monster. You actually feel compassion for the monster who is seeking his place. Anyway, I won't go into that too deeply. It's been a long time since I've read Frankenstein, but this book made me kind of want to revisit it. It's about a girl and her brother who are living with their grandmother who is in charge of this facility that takes kind of incurable people who have mental illnesses. She's a psychologist, mental health professional, and this is in the 70s, I believe it is. And she's an older woman, hence grandmother. She brings home a child, another girl, and is like, this girl's going to be your sister. I need you, the older daughter, to take care of her, to keep an eye on her. I want you to report on her to me how she's doing because she homeschools the kids, too. They're very smart children because she has very high standards for them. They have to write reports, all these things, really smart kids. You start wondering what's going on at the facility. They're homeschooled. They're pretty isolated. And you start to realize not all is well on the Hill. Hmm. Let me just read you this section here. Um, okay, so what is surprising is that the issue of eugenics comes up. I didn't see that coming. Vermont has an awful history with that because there was a big eugenics movement set in Vermont in the 1920s and 30s. It has an interesting literary connection to current days because Dorothy Canfield Fisher, who was a very popular writer of the day back then from Vermont, was involved in that movement. She was a member. So there was a children's book award named after her that a couple years ago, Vermont decided they needed to, well, not Vermont, but a particular person started making this known and saying it's not really appropriate that we have a children's award named after someone who believed in this. Maybe you should tell people what eugenics is. I guess in a nutshell, it's really talking about racial purity, racial superiority, whether vice or virtue is an inheritable condition. So they were exploring these issues very much like Nazi Germany was exploring these issues. Hence, that's one of the reasons why it is now considered so notorious, because they're not just ideas, they're actually experiments done on people, sometimes rather harmful, sometimes heinous. I won't go into the details about that. If you're interested, there's certainly a lot about it out there. It has an interesting literary connection to current days, because Dorothy Canfield Fisher, who was a very popular writer of the day back then from Vermont, was involved in that movement. She was a member. So there was a children's book award named after her that a couple years ago, a particular person started making this known and saying it's not really appropriate that we have a children's award named after someone who believed in this. So yeah, so that is a storyline in this book. So trigger warnings for those types of issues for sure. You know, it's two kids who are the main characters in that time period. And then it goes into the current day where one of the girls is now a woman who is a monster hunter. She has a podcast. They've done one season of a TV show that's been very successful. And she's tracking down a current monster that is in Vermont. She hasn't been back to Vermont since she left a long time ago. So you know the past is going to start coming to haunt her. And so speaking of haunting, I just wanted to read this quick paragraph. This is V or Vi from Violet. She asked Gran once if anyone had ever seen a ghost there. Gran had looked at her with an amused smile. 
It's a psychiatric hospital, Violet. People see all kinds of unusual things. But if you're asking me if I think it's haunted, then no. I don't believe places can be haunted. Only people, and not in a supernatural way. People are only haunted by their pasts. So I kind of feel like that is a really good understanding or a good door into a lot of Jennifer McMahon's stories in general. Yeah, for sure. The book dragged for me in the middle a little bit, but wow, I I just did a big binge finishing like the last probably third of it last night and really ended up enjoying it. Stuff happens that I did not see coming. There's some good twists and turns. So again, that was The Children on the Hill by Jennifer McMahon, available now. Fun. Well, I did something rather unusual. I went to the library (laughs) and I got three books out. And one of them was Pearl by Tabitha King. And um, the reason I got this out is, as I said, I went on a total Jennifer Weiner stalking thing, which included reading her website. And in the about section, she talks about this book, Pearl, being one of her favorites of all time. So Pearl is written again by Tabitha King, who Chris pointed out to me is Stephen King's wife, which I had no idea. So all of that was news to me when I got it out of the (laughs) library. But this book was published in 1988. Mm. So it's been around a little while. It takes place in a fictional main town called Nod's Ridge. And Tabitha King set five books in this town. For those of you who are Stephen King fans and Tabitha King fans, you might know that they live in Maine. It's a state that's important to them and they're familiar with. The book had all of the trappings of small town life, which I grew up in a small town, so I always appreciate. And it also makes me wince at the same time. Pearl, the character that the novel is named after, is a black woman who inherits a house in Nod's Ridge, which is an all-white town for the most part. So she shows up and everybody's interested in her and how she got to be there. She faces some racism. She goes to the local diner, which is owned by Roscoe, and she wants to buy it from him. The very beginning of the book is just a back and forth that they have. He's kind of a snarky vet with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth as he fries up really bad food that's the diner in the small town. So everyone goes there, even if the food is shit. And she wants to buy it from him. And he kind of can't believe his luck that someone would walk in and be offering him money. But of course, no amount of money is enough. So I just wanted to read this very funny exchange they have. So she's already eaten at the restaurant and she's back to to be offering him money again. Coming back at mid-morning, she found the cook alone, doing the tidying up in the lull between breakfast and lunch. He looked at her speculatively. Coffee, she said. He poured it from a pot she was sure from the smell had been sitting there half-finished since the end of his breakfast rush. Are you the owner, she asked. He laughed harshly. Yep. Mr. Needham? He nodded. The one and only. You looking for a buyer? He stared at her. There was an incredulous gleam in his eye, as if after years of lusting after the town librarian, he had been offered a blowjob among the periodicals. It was as good as a look at his accounts. Roscoe is just like this ornery guy. They end up establishing a friendship. She does buy the diner from him. She completely transforms it. Her food is fantastic. And then there's a whole cast of characters that come out. 
of the woodwork and become people that are at the diner. There is a rabid puppy on the loose. So there's a little nod to Cujo, which was one of Stephen King's books. And there's also a nod to cocaine. There's a character that has an incident with cocaine, which I thought was interesting considering some of the King family legacy. The one thing that I thought was really interesting, we've talked to authors about this and the times are a lot different than 1988. I don't know if a white author now would write from a black woman's point of view. I thought that was a really interesting part of the book. Did you find any bits problematic? I didn't. I thought that it all held up. I mean, I thought she was very honest with the racism that she came across, but I just did think that aspect was interesting. There is a part where Pearl ends up having relations with two separate men. There's a lot of sex in the book. Ah, the 80s. Yes. (laughs) There were some really funny scenes. But there is a point where Pearl is thinking about the fact that she's having sex with these two different men and experiencing self-doubt about the idea of the trope of being like the black whore in town. And I thought, ooh, wow, I don't know about that. Yeah. But but she wasn't that. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it makes me think of, well, Gwen- Gwendolyn Brooks and just the assumptions and the stereotypes that are out there and how aware black people are of them and how it alters their behavior because you don't want somebody thinking that. Right. Yeah. I loved this book so much. And I can't believe I've never heard of Tabitha King. I don't know if people who've been reading Stephen King and the King family for years, maybe, you know, this is old news because you were like, oh, yeah, Tabitha King. Well, I've always wanted to read a book by her, but I never have. They have two sons and a daughter. And I think the two sons both write. I think the daughter does something else. Because she dug Carrie, his manuscript of Carrie, out of the garbage can. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, because he was just fed up. And oh. she was like, no way. Mm-hmm. This is not happening. <laughs> so, But yeah, I've, I've been interested in her books. Yeah, I thought she was a great writer. I couldn't find much about this book. You know, I was looking for reviews and things like that. But I really enjoyed it, recommend it. And I could see why Jennifer Weiner likes this book, because it is a lot about relationships and marriage and small towns and things like that. Again, it's called Pearl by Tabitha King. Yeah, that's very cool. And then when you read a book, too, can yes inform you so differently than when you read it at a different time in your life. Absolutely. Well, I read three picture books since the last episode that I really enjoyed You know what I did one day? You were there with me, I think, that day at the library. I was looking in the kids' department, and they had a display, and I just picked up a bunch of books from the display. These are three of them. So the first was I Am an American, The Wong Kim Ark Story by Martha Brockenberg with Grace Lynn, and it's illustrated by Julia Koo, K-U-O. And this came out from Brown & Company in 2021, It's the story of Kim Ark, who was born in San Francisco in the 19th century to parents who were from China. They were immigrants from China. And in the late 19th century, it was an awful time to be Asian American in the United States because of the hatred against anyone who wasn't white, for the most part, but also because, um, you know, the Chinese immigrants were really flourishing A lot of them were horrifically abused during the construction of the railroads as well. But there were many of them who had thriving businesses in San Francisco. And then even the manual laborers were looked at poorly because people thought they were taking jobs from white people. 
So there are a lot of laws passed about who could immigrate. They changed throughout time. And Kim Ark's parents decide to move back to China. He considers himself an American. He was born there. This is all he knows. He does go to visit them after they've moved to China, and he comes back, and all is well. And then a couple of years later, he goes again. And he's very careful. He has an affidavit signed by three white witnesses swearing that he was born in America, that he was born in California. He also has a photo taken and attaches his photo to this affidavit. But when he comes back to the United States, he is not allowed in. He's imprisoned on a ship waiting trial. The trial eventually goes all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court trial, which is depicted in the book, which is very interesting because it comes up again in another book, a different trial. It took a year for the justices to debate the issue, but they did eventually rule that anyone born in the United States was a citizen based on the 14th Amendment, which had been ratified in 1868 to give former enslaved people citizenship. Because there were so many arguments that if you're not white, if you're not part of the culture. So really great book. I enjoyed it very much. The colors are very vibrant. And in the back of the book, there is a historical, not so much a timeline, but more of a factual documentary type information. You know, this is a, a nonfiction picture book. And at the end, it's just a little bit more of like a history lesson. So that was a really great read. The next book goes back further in time to about 500 years ago. And this was Asnat and her dove, the true story of the world's first female rabbi by Segal Samuel with illustrations by Valley Mincy. This came out from Levine Quadro in 2021, another relatively new book. So Asnat, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's O-S-N-A-T. She was born, like I said, 500 years ago in the Middle East in what is now Iraq. And her dad was a rabbi who um, was really well known, and he built a lot of yeshivas. So he was very involved in the community of men studying the Torah. And she is left alone while dad is gone. And, he, you know, she's in the library, his library, and he comes home finally. And she's like, you know, teach me to read. And he's like, no, girls don't read. Girls do chores. Boys read. And she's like, well, you don't have a son. Teach your daughter. And so he does. And she becomes a really dedicated student. She studies the Torah, and he teaches her other traditions as well. The dove part, she befriends this dove, and the dove comes into play later. She gets to the age where she's supposed to be married. And she's like, I don't want to get married, because anybody I marry is going to expect me not to read. And that's not happening. She has all these suitors come, and eventually one comes, and he says, I promise, I swear, if you marry me, you can still keep studying. And so he fulfills his promise. She keeps studying. She becomes an even greater teacher. When her dad dies and then her husband dies, she takes over as the leader of the yeshiva that her dad had built and was their home school, school for their town. And along comes a hunter one day and shoots her dove. And there's the screaming in the streets and, the, you know, she goes out and she picks up her dove who's laying there lifeless. She goes back inside and eventually out comes the dove flying. So people now think she's this great healer. And then there's another myth later on that she's going teaching other places. She goes to this one town and the synagogue is on fire because the candles fell over or something like that. It wasn't an attack. It was a 
standard historical kind of house fire because of open flames. And witnesses say that all of these doves or maybe angels came down and beat the flames out with their wings. So then they thought, well, God is on her side. She's this healer. So she became this really big legend. And I had never heard of her. So that was a really enjoyable book as well. There's another historical note at the end. I guess it's a good thing to call it a historical note that she was Asna Barzani was her name. And she was born in 1590 in Mosul. And then she died in 1670 in a nearby town of Amadiah. Wow. Yeah, really good. Beautiful, beautiful illustrations as well. Then the last one is We Are Still Here, Native American Truths Everyone Should Know by Tracy Sorrell, illustrated by Franny Lassac. I'm probably mutilating those names. I apologize. So this is a really cool book. It's presented as an Indigenous Peoples Day Presentations Night is going on. So each student is doing a 10-minute presentation on different topics, and I'll just list them real quick. So assimilation, allotment, Indian New Deal, termination, relocation, tribal activism, self-determination, Indian child welfare and education, religious freedom, economic development, language revival, and sovereign resurgence. I thought that was a really brilliant way to cover these topics for children in a way that seemed real and really relatable. Because what kid doesn't have to make a presentation and then make a poster, you know, and sit through everybody else's presentation. So I really appreciated that. And now at the end of this book, there is a really big timeline. It stretches from 1870 to 2007. It also has a glossary of terms, sources, and then an author's note. Tracy Sorrell is a citizen of both the Cherokee Nation and the United States of America. What struck me about a lot of these books, or or two of the books in particular, so the two that are set in the U.S., is that the legal system and the courts are such a part of the story. There is a court scene as well in We Are Still Here, as there was in I Am an American. Interesting. Yeah. I think that's an important thing for kids to learn, too, that the courts are there and laws interpreted in different ways. The same piece of the Constitution could be studied, and people have different takes on it. So I think that's interesting for kids to start learning about a little bit. A little bit of a civics lesson at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. Anyway, those are three really great kids' books. So I'd recommend all three of these for any kids you know, or if you're a school librarian. And reminder, all of this is in the show notes. So we will have links to them so you can see what they are and the titles and the author names and all of that. Yeah. And maybe we'll post some pictures, too, of them because they're all really beautifully illustrated and vibrant. Yeah. Another book I picked up from the library was True Biz by Sarah Novick. Oh, my gosh. This book was so good and such a surprise. I had no idea what it was about. It has a very kind of eye-catching cover, and it was in the quick read news section of the library. This is an example of a book that you read when they talk about how reading helps you build empathy and just helps you learn about something you have know nothing about. It's partly a coming of age story about Charlie, who is a deaf teenager who's born to hearing parents, which I learned doing a ton of research after reading this book that 90% of children who are born deaf are born to hearing parents, which I thought was interesting. And Charlie has a cochlear implant, which is the physical 
implant that is surgically added to a person's skull to help them be able to hear. And then another character in the book is February, who is born to deaf parents, but can hear. And she's the principal at a school for deaf students. That's like a boarding school where kids can actually live. And then Austin is another character who comes from a multi-generational family of deaf people. So he's like the golden boy of the campus because family members have gone there for years. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that happens in the book is he's an older kid, but his parents have a child and she is born hearing. At least they think she is. She slowly starts to lose her hearing and the parents start to consider giving her a cochlear implant. So what the book is really about is being a deaf person in the world, kind of the drama around do you or don't you decide for your child whether or not they should get a cochlear implant because they are not without their problems. So one of the issues is there are literally mechanical problems that can cause your child to have dizziness and headaches and actually get electrocuted, which is what happens to the character in this book, Charlie. And when you make this decision for your child, you're obviously making it before they have a say. If you want it to have the highest rate of success, they believe you should put them in when kids are very young so they do start to hear things. And what happens for those children is a lot of times their parents don't have them learn American Sign Language at all. This Mm. book does take place in the United States. So it's fiction, but it's about looking at the issue of being a deaf person in the United States from various angles and what it's like to be a deaf person born to hearing parents, a deaf person born to deaf parents, a hearing person born to deaf parents. I mean, she really looks at all sides, but she's definitely taking a side about the problems with cochlear implants. Definitely there's a side taken in this book in a lot of ways. The author is deaf, so she has a perspective of the deaf community. One of the things that's really cool in the book is that there are a lot of little nonfiction pieces sprinkled throughout where you learn about different types of sign language. I'm showing it to Chris. Yeah, it's our pictures, drawings. Yeah, and they try to make them three-dimensional so you can really understand them. And then little tiny tidbits about cochlear implants, about the history of being a deaf person in the United States, and the struggles for kids and for families about making decisions. And what is being deaf? Is it a disability? Or is it a community of people who can't hear? So she covers a lot of territory. Austin and Charlie are teenagers. So there's a little bit of anarchy and love and trying to come to terms with your family and teenage angst. I loved it. It was a total page turner for me and such an unusual book. I don't think I've ever read anything like it. It's awesome. I've never even seen it. I don't think I've come across it at all. I hadn't seen it. And it's a Reese's book club pick. It's, you know, there's a sticker on it that says that. So it's definitely out in the world. People have heard about it. I wanted to just also say that the title True Biz is in ASL, American Sign Language. It means really seriously, definitely real talk. And one of the other things she talks about is there are different versions of sign language and the history of that. Mm -hmm. So learned a ton, definitely made me look up cochlear implants and try to understand a little bit more about them and what the pros and cons are, because there are definitely pros as well. 
Super interesting. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, I have a friend who has one, but he's much older. So Mm -hmm. I had no idea, you know, I mean, I guess I did know that they do them with kids because when they first came out, I remember seeing a bunch of videos of people hearing, especially young people, you know, hearing things for the first time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just how amazing that is and, and overwhelming. Yeah. I mean, and I was behind a, a family one time at the airport where they were trying to explain to TSA that their child couldn't go through the new fancy machines that if you have a magnet in your head, you can't go through. And they just did not understand. It was frustrating for me because, of course, I can be bossy and I wanted to <laughs> explain to them why the child can go in. But anyway, at the beginning of the book, one of the inscriptions, I guess, is that what you, you know, like, it's not a quote, but at the beginning says, a manufacturer of amazing medical devices known as cochlear implants, which restore hearing to the deaf, sold defective implants to young children and adults for years, even after learning that a significant number of the devices had failed. Wow. So there's some dramatic history, real history that she's also trying to bring to light Mm -hmm. in this book. Again, it's called True Biz by Sarah Novick. Well, our next book is one that we read together. It was a buddy read. Maud Martha. Yes. Maud <laughs> Martha by Gwendolyn Brooks. And we've talked about Gwendolyn Brooks in the past. She's known more as a poet. This is the only novel that she wrote. It was originally published in 1953. Our copies came from Third World Press and came out in 1993. It's kind of hard to get right now. It is. It's out of print right now, but there is a new edition that has just come out in the UK or is coming out very soon. I do look forward to getting that because I'm sure it's going to have a really interesting introduction and things like that. And we would have to do that through Book Depository, right? Yeah, Book Depository is great. And it is available there to pre-order the last I look, and that was a couple of weeks ago. And I didn't know when it was coming out, but I thought it was sometime in May. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So again, the only novel she wrote, some people refer to it as a novella. I think it's a little long to be a novella, but we don't have to get into that. Yeah. So the edition that we have, it's 180 pages. I think that's... It's a novel. Yeah. I look at it as a novel and it's like a collection of vignettes almost that cover this woman, Maud Martha. It covers her life from the time she's a young girl until she's well into her marriage. Yeah, with child. Yeah, there's a birthing scene. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And it's somewhat, I think, autobiographical of Gwendolyn Brooks' life. There's no confirmation of that, but it sure seems like it to me as you read it, wouldn't you say? I would think so. That's kind of how I couldn't help but read it. But she was so in touch with the common person. Yeah, we have a Goodreads thread on our group page under Buddy Reads for this. And Chris linked to a really nice piece by Asali Solomon about this. And one of the quotes that I wrote down from that is that she said, the book shows that Gwendolyn Brooks had a passionate love for ordinary people. And that was really true in her poetry as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what this novel is. Like Maud Martha is just this ordinary girl growing up on the south side of Chicago. And she has a mom and a dad. A sister. A sister. She has a grandmother who does die in the book. So like her life is very ordinary in a lot of ways that a lot of people could relate to anyway, probably. Yeah. And there's a very cute part where her sister Helen is getting all dolled up and she turns to Maud and she says, 
You'll never get a boyfriend, said Helen, fluffing on her golden peacock powder, if you don't stop reading those books. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, education is a part in this, because like two of my favorite chapters are um, about her first boyfriends. The first one is a very sexy man who has a way with women. And the second one is a, a guy who's an academic He's frustrated because he's African-American and he's really understanding like how far advanced the white students are around him, like who grew up with parents discussing ideas over the dinner table since they were four, talking about ideas and authors that he's just reading now. So he's really angry and frustrated over that. And he says, what chance did he have? He mused, what chance was there for anybody coming out of a set of conditions that never allowed for the prevalence of sensitive and intellectual, yet almost frivolous, dinner table discussion of Parrington across four-year-old heads. And the Parrington is main currents in American thought, which was this three-volume history of American thought going back to the Puritans that was really influential in the 20s. This book, I think, reads for any time period in a lot of ways, but definitely historically specific at the same time. Yeah. So the chapters are each titled, and I loved the way they were titled. So what Chris just read from was a chapter called Second Bow. I loved the chapter First Bow. And here's just the very first couple sentences, just to give you an idea of, you know, just it was sexy, this chapter. He had a way of putting his hands on a woman, light but perforating. Ooh, that got me hot and bothered. (laughs) Passing by, he would touch the woman's hair. He would give the woman's hair a careless and yet deliberate caress, working down from the top to the ends, then gliding to the chin, then lifting the chin till the poor female's eyes were forced to meet his, then proceeding down the neck. And Maud Martha's kind of getting disgusted by it. But then as soon as he might give her a little attention, she said, finally, he had tried it and a sloppy feeling had filled her. I love that. I love that description. Yeah. The the words she uses are just, I mean, you can tell she's a poet because they're just all very specific, you Mm -hmm. know, like the word perforating, you know, I just love that word. But she's still like, even though like she feels, I love that sloppy feeling. That is such a great description. Mm -hmm. Um, But she knows that like, he's not gonna be the end all be all for her because she, she says, you know, for Russell lacked what he was nice. He was fun to go about with. He was decorated inside and out. He did things, said things with a flourish. That was what he was. He was a flourish. He was a dazzling, long, and sleepily swishing flourish. I, I mean, love that. Yeah. I wrote that when I was reading it. I read this on the train to New York, and I just wrote flourish like five times. Because I'm like, what a great way to describe someone yeah. that's like that. You, know, I mean, you could just tell what kind of a guy he was. Absolutely. I started reading this book aloud when I was just at home with my dogs. And they're kind of used to that. Because every now and then I do that when the writing is so beautiful. And I definitely felt that with um, this book. So my dogs have had several pages of Gwendolyn Brooks <laughs> read to them. Yeah, I just loved it. And then... Um, Our listener, Robin, on the Goodreads thread said she loved it also. And she said she felt like the vignettes showed the fleeting nature of life and that it read as prose poetry, which I think is true. She also noted the inscription, which at the very beginning, it says, Maud Martha was born in 1917. She is still alive. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. This is a book that I'm definitely going to keep and I think reread occasionally because... 
It is so beautiful. And I think it's one of those books you'll pick up more of the subtleties as you reread it. You know, because one of the things I was struck by was the mother in this book. Because the mom and dad have a fight and he storms out all decked up and dressed. And so later when he comes home, Maud cries out in the middle of the night for mama. And mama's response is shut up. She says the little girl did not mind being told harshly to shut up when her mother wanted it quiet so that she and daddy could love each other. And then it skips down a little bit. Even though while the loud hate and silent cold was going on, mama was so terribly sweet and good to her. It's just like that type of woman who it's all about her man. And she'll pay attention to the kids when he's not available. Mm -hmm. But as soon as he is, it becomes all about him. And then at the same time, how much is the dad disconnected? Like if the mom's not paying attention, you know, he's not, Mm -hmm. at least not in this book, I don't think that I can Mm -hmm. remember. Um, There's the birthing scene that we won't have to go into, but um, (laughs) I loved it so much. I guess I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it. Yeah, I really loved it. And we've been talking about reading this book. We actually talked about having it as a read along last year. And then, well, we did nonfiction last year, so it didn't fit. And then this year we decided to do indigenous and then we realized that it's also kind of hard to get. Yeah, so actually it's been longer than last year, Emily. I got my copy on October 24th, 2017. Yeah, we thought about doing it a long time ago. A long time ago, because <laughs> and that was at the Toadstool Bookshop in St. Peterborough, New Hampshire, where I was surprised to see it. Brooks is one of those authors, I'll check at a used bookstore if they have anything by her. And mm-hmm. when I saw that, I was like, no way. I don't think I've ever seen this in a used bookstore. Yeah. No, I haven't. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Chris ordered a copy for me. It was hard to find. Yeah. So we highly recommend it. Maud Martha, Gwendolyn Brooks. Maybe when we get more information about the UK version, we'll share it. Definitely. Um, Yeah. And check with your libraries too. Maybe they have copies. Biblio Adventures. We had some major joint jaunts together. We really did. And part of it was because of Gwendolyn Brooks. I mean, we wanted to go back to New York City. It's been over two years since we'd been in Manhattan together. Yeah. A lot of withdrawal. Yeah. It's one of our favorite places to go. It's why both of us kind of moved here in part because you can hop on a train with public transportation, get down to the city, caught up with Aunt Ellen at Grand Central Station. And then we walked right to the New York Public Library, the main one on Fifth Avenue, to renew our library cards. To find that you can't renew your library card at the main library. Yes, they don't do it there anymore, which is surprising because I, I did once there. But they sent us across the street to the Midtown Manhattan branch, which is really, it's just kitty corner, you know. Yeah, um, it was just a couple blocks. Yeah, and that's been completely renovated. Beautiful, sleek design, but also warm because there's a lot of wood. Yeah, and comfy chairs, lots of selection of books. It's always amazing when we go to New York, they have multiple copies of books. It's so interesting. Yeah, so we all got our library cards renewed, except for Ellen, because, you know, hers is as a resident. She's current. Much longer. Yeah. yeah. We so. can only, since we're non-residents, our cards only last three months and we have to renew them in person. Yeah. Which, you know, which I'll sorry take for us. I mean, I love that. Aside about the New York Public Library, they're making banned books available to everyone online. So check that out. We'll put a link in the show notes. That's awesome. Yeah. Good for them. And then we went to the Morgan Library and Museum to go to the Gwendolyn Brooks exhibit. Yes, that was so cool. Uh, It was great to be back in that place. Beautiful. We also poked our heads into the Morgan Library. 
in his office. And that was always beautiful to see. But the main event was going to see the Gwendolyn Brooks exhibit, which was in one of the smaller exhibit spaces. Yeah, it was very intimate. And I think we were all kind of taken aback at first at how small it was. But boy, there was a lot to look at and a lot to read. I learned a lot. Part of what I learned about was about Third World Press, which is the press that published the copies of Maud Martha that we have. Yeah, they're out of Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. And specifically worked on publishing black authors, which is why Gwendolyn Brooks wanted to have her books published there. Because her first book, I believe, was published with one of the biggies, which I don't remember. And then she chose to have her works published with Third World Press. I mean, it's a really well done exhibit. It told a really good story. Not all exhibits are created equally in that some of them might have really flashy objects to look at but maybe not tell a great story about them. And this one was so well done that you really felt like you got to know Gwendolyn Brooks' writing because it was all about her being a writer in community. And in a certain period of time, in time, I should say, which I think they also did really well. Yeah. Yeah. I think the way that it was put together was through time, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, because she's the first African-American woman writer to receive the Pulitzer. Annie Allen is the book that she won uh, the Pulitzer with that book. And that was a book of poetry. Mm -hmm. So first black author to win, and she won for poetry, which is pretty darn cool. Totally. One of the things the exhibit made clear is that the power of having won that award gave her a lot of freedom as she tackled more and more complex, controversial subjects in her writing. Yeah, it really empowered her. That really came out in the exhibit. I agree. Yeah. They had different copies of books and different visuals of other things, too. That was used by an artist. Let me just read this. How about that? So her poem is We Real Cool. And this is the placard. It reads, the creators of the black arts movement wanted to reach the widest possible black audience. To do so, writers had to, quote, bring poetry to the people, end quote, wherever they were. It was with this in mind that Broadside Press launched its Broadside series, printing single poems on sheets of paper with eye-catching designs. Often sold for a few cents, these sheets were meant to be passed around, hung up, and pasted on city walls. The ethos of this format, which made poetry accessible at minimal cost, also inspired the press's name. When publisher Dudley Randall started the series, he asked Brooks if she could contribute a poem. Brooks replied, you can use any poem I have, resulting in the striking printing of her 1960 work, We Real Cool, designed by Cletty Taylor. And I I could read the poem. We real cool. We love school. We lurk late. We strike straight. We sing sin, we thin gin, we jazz June, we die soon. And when I saw her speak at my college back in the day, she read that poem. That Mm -hmm. was one I do remember her reading. So it was a great exhibit. It's there through June 5th, if anyone has the opportunity to go see it. Chris and I also both read children's books that feature Gwendolyn Brooks. Yeah, well, the one I read, it's called Bronzeville. Boys and Girls, and this is written by Gwendolyn Brooks and illustrated by Faith Ringgold. Which is going to have a little bit of synchronicity for the next exhibit we went to, but hold on for that. (laughs) And I read Exquisite, The Poetry and Life of Gwendolyn Brooks by Suzanne Slade, illustrated by Cosby A. Cabrera. 
And this one was an honor book for the Robert F. Seibert Award. And I love the illustrations in this book. We'll have to share some of those. Yeah. So, so after that. After that, well, we did have a little snack there at the Morgan. They have a nice little cafe. And then they have a bookstore. We visited the bookstore. <laughs> and then we walked all the way up north through Central Park. It was a beautiful Somewhat warm. It was day. warm. It was like almost 80 and very sunny. Yeah. And we dressed as appropriately as we could, but it was still a pretty hot and sweaty day. Yeah. And then we stopped at Harvest Kitchen for some salads and then went to the New York Historical Society Museum and Library. Yeah, that was my first time there. Mine as well. And we were going specifically to see the exhibit Picture the Dream, the story of the civil rights movement through children's books. And the synchronicity that was interesting was there were a lot of images done by Faith Ringgold. Yes, I had no idea that she was such a huge illustrator and had done so many books. So I look forward to checking more of hers out. And as Emily said, when we were at the exhibit, she's like, well, I definitely know her style now. Yeah, you'd be able to pick it out in a lineup. Yeah, because there were lots of different artists represented there, but they, they did have multiple Faith Ringgolds, and hers are of a certain style. Yeah, they're very bold and colorful and just beautiful. Yeah, and this exhibit did have a timeline and really did take kids through. It's in the kids part of the museum, that's why I said that, through the civil rights movement, through different picture books. Mm-hmm fascinating. Yeah, it's very cool. All the way up to Black Lives Matters. So it was really interesting to see the different styles too. And then they actually had a big timeline on Mm -hmm. the wall, which was helpful. Yeah, because it's always shocking to me like, yeah, this is not old history. Right. And it starts kind of with Jim Crow. Um, The explanation on the wall when you first walk in talks about Jim Crow and and how it was represented in children's books as a crow, as a literal crow, mm-hmm. and how some kids thought that mm-hmm. Jim Crow was a literal crow. So that was really interesting and, and very sad, too, because things are still not equal and there's still so much violence mm-hmm. against people. Yeah, it was very poignant, I yes. thought, and very well done. Yeah, and so then after that, we actually talked to... The woman, um, it was a different woman at the front when you first walk in, you know, um, the docent who also, you know, clicks people, you know, in so they can have a head count of how many people come. And we asked her if the exhibit was getting a lot of traffic. And she said, you know, not really at this time, like maybe 30 people a day were coming in. She said, most people come up here to the second floor to see the big Picasso. And we're like, oh, we didn't know about a Picasso. So she's like, yeah, it's just, you know, down the hall. And so then we went down the hall and the big, huge Picasso thing was cool. It was a curtain for a ballet, really big. But what fascinated us most on our walk to that other gallery was they had a whole hallway exhibit about Robert Caro, the biographer of Lyndon Johnson. Yeah, he's written four books about Lyndon Johnson. Right. Yeah, his most recent book was actually a book about his writing, how he writes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and then there's a fifth Johnson biography to come out. And I've only read one. I know like our friend Kate has read them all. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're thick bios. And he's won two Pulitzers for them and a whole slew of other awards. He's known for being very thorough and meticulous. He uses his hands to write. He does not use a computer. And this exhibit was so cool. It's all just down a long hallway on both sides. 
Yeah, and we were just starting to walk down the hallway, and like you know, we glanced at stuff, and and then we glanced again, and we're like, whoa, you know, this is about Carol. So we just really got into it. They have his typewriter there because he does have a typewriter. Well, I guess he doesn't use this one anymore. Um, <laughs> Maybe it's a slightly <laughs> upgraded version. Yeah, <laughs> um, but they had so many of his notes, which were really great to see because apparently they have his papers there. So this exhibit was just fantastic. So he also likes to use, what are those types of books? They're like memo books, you know, they're the kind of... I think they're called stenographer, stenographer pads. Yes, yeah. yeah, those long, they're rectangular vertically oriented and they have a red line down the middle so he uses those a lot for notes on one page circled the first part be very careful varies underlined two times and this is all in caps and right underneath it it says this guy just wants you to say something that he can quote all over town (laughs) so that was intriguing and really great to see that kind of note and then the other one, this is one Emily spotted, and we got a kick out of it. I took a picture, and we can post this, too, on social media. So this is written on an index card. And on top, it says, take out, and then there are three bullet points. The combinings of sentences, the combinings of paragraphs, the commas matter. And matter is underlined twice with two exclamation points. The commas matter. They're the rhythm. Rhythm is underlined twice and two more exclamation points. So all of you nonfiction writers out there, I love myself a comma personally, but mm-hmm. you know, but thinking Kara about, really believes in them. Yeah. And thinking about them as the rhythm mm-hmm. of the writing. I Absolutely. love that. Yeah. And then underneath the takeout, it says restore the leaps, the elan. And then at the very bottom, it says don't rush. Mm. Yeah. I mean, good words for someone who's given most of his life over to this project, right? Yes. That's the interesting thing because it's it's about his writing life and you have these pictures of him as a young guy in like the 60s, earlier than that maybe even, all the way up until current days and he is an older man now. Yeah. So it was really fascinating to see his progression as a human being and then the progression of his note taking and the books and yeah, yeah. that yeah, was a nice it's, surprise. It's a great exhibit. So it was a fantastic day in New York. Well, and after that, it was, oh, you know, right. it we weren't was, done. We I'm weren't sorry. done. You know, we were, I don't know, my dogs weren't barking. I was feeling pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, She's talking about her feet, everybody. My feet. <laughs> Did you people not say that anymore? <laughs> I've never said it. Really? No, but I know you long enough to know that that's what you mean because wow. you've said it to me before. Have I? Yeah. I thought that was kind of a common thing. Maybe. All right. Yeah. So anyway, we were all feeling pretty good. And so we walked to a used bookstore. It was West Sider Rare and Used Books, I think is the official title. So that was a little bit out of our way, opposite direction from walking back to Grand Central Terminal, but it was worth it. It was a fun walk, and uh, the bookstore is great. It was really great. It's one yeah. of those narrow, long, narrow stores that's just, you know, ceiling to floor books, two with the, stories. With the cat. Which I discovered, even though I was wearing an N95, I'm still allergic, which was disappointing. I'm like, how good are these masks? <laughs> right. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. 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 We yeah. were looking for copies of Two Old Women by Velma Wallace, our read-along. We did not find those, but Chris found two really cool books. I did. I found a Cather book, a nonfiction one about her writing, and then I picked up a biography of Catherine Wright. It's a YA biography of her, and she is the sister of the Wright brothers. 
And I saw that. I was like, I didn't even know they had a sister. No, and I had no idea. I mean, I've been to the Wright Memorial down in North Carolina. Granted, it's been a really long time, so I don't remember if she was mentioned and or if they've since included her if she hadn't been back then. So that is definitely going to be a summer read for me. Yeah, cool. Yeah, that was a fun time. So then we walked. Well, actually, we didn't walk back. Storms were coming. And I was like, let's just take a cab. You yeah. know, let's just because Ellen is all about walking. She's like, we're going underground <laughs> or right public transportation. And yeah. uh, I was like, let's because she's like, you know, when it rains, the traffic just snarls. But I think it was early enough, like it was just the hint of a storm. So we got in and we got to Grand Central in no time flat. Yeah. So it was a really good day. Took the train home. So fun to be back in the city again. Absolutely. And then people were really well masked up for the most part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely on the train. Yeah. We felt comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. So we also had one other joint jaunt to Savoy Bookshop and Cafe. We met up with two authors there, author Andrea Wang, who wrote the book Watercress, Caldecott Award winner, Newbery Honor winner. And then the other author is Debbie Machinko Florence. Uh, her new book that's coming out is Sweet and Sour. And this is a middle school age book. A middle reader, I think is what they call them. Yeah, this one is coming out July 26th. It takes place in Mystic, Connecticut, which is really fun. It's very much of the place, which I enjoyed. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. And we're going to talk more about both of these books in an episode in June. We really had a wonderful conversation with both Andrea and Debbie. And we're grateful for the theater across the street from the Savoy. The United Theater. They let us utilize one of their music rooms to record. So that was wonderful. Yeah. And that episode will be coming up in June. So we're not going to talk more about the books now, but we will later. Yeah. But highly recommend both of these authors if you want to get on them now. Yeah. Yeah, Sure. Do you have any upcoming jaunts scheduled, Chris? You know, I have one that's actually this Saturday. It's coming up. It's a one-day conference by the Association for the Study of Connecticut History. It's about teaching history with courage. It sounds really great. It's for adults, college people, high schoolers, about teaching history, studying history with courage. So they're talking uh, everything from digital resources in history, accessing them to African history, Hispanic and Latinx voices in the curriculum, LGBTQ history from Connecticut's past and beyond, and then disrupting white supremacy in American history. So these all sounded like great panels. So I'm really looking forward to it and we'll definitely report back. Yeah. How about you? I have one, and it's actually on the day this episode airs. So if you're interested, go hop out and get some tickets quick. It's with Tara M. Stringfellow, who's the author of the book Memphis that I really enjoyed. And this is through Random House's Book Club Happy Hour, which I'd never heard of. Mm -hmm. So it's free. You know, I mean, you can buy a book with it, but I've already read it, so I didn't do that. And so it's April 26th at 8.30 p.m. A little bit late for me, but hopefully... We'll get in my jammies and enjoy. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Any upcoming reads? You know what? Our listener, Joan, reached out and recommended an author to us who's a friend of hers, Jennifer Byrne. She writes children's picture books and thought that we should check her out. So I definitely am going to. I've put three on hold already. Our local library had one of them. And it's about a bird 
who doesn't fly because he or she wants to read all the time. Oh, I can relate. Yeah. So I think it's called Calvin Doesn't Fly. And then there's one about Emily Dickinson and then one about Jacques Cousteau. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So uh, more to come about them. And thank you so much, Joan, for the recommendation. Yeah. We love hearing from listeners. Email us, bookcougars at gmail.com. Well, the other book I got at the library the other day was The Matrix by Lauren Groff, which was a top read for a lot of people who told us about their top reads in 21. And I've wanted to read it and just haven't gotten around to it. So I picked it up. We'll see if I actually get to it. Maybe that'll like encourage me to get to my copy much sooner than... Yeah, Yeah, so many people we know, including on Ellen, loved it. Hopefully, I will get to it. So coming up next is our conversation with author Jess Montgomery. We've had her on a couple times in the past. She has the Kinship series. This is the fourth book that she's here to talk about today called The Echoes. We hope you enjoy the conversation. We're really happy to have back with us today Jess Montgomery. Jess writes a Writer's Digest magazine column called Level Up Your Writing Life and was formerly the literary life columnist for the Dayton Daily News. Based on early chapters of the first book in the Kinship series, The Widows, Jess was awarded an Ohio Arts Council Individual Artist Grant for Literary Arts and named the John E. Nance Writer-in-Residence at Thurber House in Columbus. She also hosts the podcast Tea with Jess, chatting with authors and artists. Jess is coming to us today from her home state of Ohio, and she's also been a guest of ours in the past. She has. Welcome, Jess. We've had you on episode 68, where you talked about The Widows, which is the first book in the Kinship series. Then we had you on episode 93, where we talked about The Hollows, which was the second book in the series. Now we're here to talk about The Echoes, which is the fourth book in the series. So why don't you just catch the listeners up quickly, because there's a book missing that we didn't get to talk to you about, (laughs) and then we can talk more about the Echoes. Oh, sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a delight to be here. And wow, three times, which is is wonderful. So yeah, The Widows kicked off uh, the Kinship series as um, Lily learns that her husband, Daniel, the sheriff, has been killed in the line of duty, and she um, is asked if she will fill in. And she does because she wants to find out who killed her husband. And that is co-narrated with her friend, well, eventual friend, I should say, Marvina, who had been a childhood friend of Daniel's. And then The Hollows, which you had me back on for, is a year later in 26, when Lily is running for sheriff in her own right, um, investigating the murder of a elderly woman and the co-narrator in that book is her childhood friend hildy and then the third book that we um move forward to in time to 1927 and in that book is called the stills and in that book we bring prohibition and bootlegging to the forefront of the plot it kind of been in the background because of course the 1920s are when prohibition um was in full effect until 1933, actually. And it just had kind of been in the background of the first two novels. And in the third novel, I decided it was time to put emphasis on it uh, because 27 is an interesting year in Prohibition history. And so we have gangsters coming to her county and she has to uh, deal with that. And then that brings us up to the fourth book, The Echoes, which we're chatting about today. And it's 1928. 
and it's summertime. It's almost July 4th, and a resident of her county is about to open a veterans park called Argonne Memorial Park for for the county, but also in specifically for veterans of what they would have called the Great War. And Lily's older brother, Roger, who's briefly mentioned in the first three books, uh, died in the Meuse-Argonne offensive during the Great War. And that's not a spoiler. That was mentioned in the first three books. But what we don't know is very much about, you know, what was he really like? We know that Lily very much loved him and adored him. Um, how did he die? You know, it's in battle, but what were the specifics? And so I thought it would be interesting to explore that. And uh, like, you know, not to many other, you know, not, not the only fellow who ever did this. <laughs> he um, becomes the father he dies before he realizes this of a young girl in France. And that's kind of introduced at the very beginning of the echoes as that young girl, Esme is making her way to the United States from France for a variety of reasons. And this novel is co-narrated by Lily and her mother, Beulah. And Lily is not aware of Esme, her niece, but mama slash Beulah is very much aware of her granddaughter um, and hasn't told this to Lily. So it's about family secrets and echoes from the past and who's family and who's not family and where do those boundaries lie and dealing with PTSD and, and all of that. Oh, intriguing. <laughs> Especially that the mother knew and didn't tell Lily. Yeah. Mm. Mama. Yeah. Mama. <laughs> <laughs> and then worries through the whole book, you know? I mean, it takes a little while oh, yeah. for the secret yeah. to be unearthed. Yeah. But I yeah. really love the way that you introduced Esme. I thought that was a really sneaky way to insert a new character <laughs> into a small town. You know, essentially, mm -hmm. it's a small town. Yeah. How did you think about that? Well, I knew I wanted Esme to be part of the cast, um, and I knew it wasn't going to be particularly easy for her to find her way. <laughs> and I also wanted to show her as a kid, not just a kid in Jeopardy, but as a kid who has uh, her wits about her. You know, she's smart, she's tough, she understands how to read people to a degree. She is still just a kid. So she actually has some of the same attributes as her aunt Lily, even though they've never met. So Lily has not, as of yet, been a direct influence on Esme, and yet they have these attributes in common. So I thought it'd be interesting to kind of show that at the beginning and then, you know, set up the tension of, wow, what's going to happen with this child throughout this novel? Because the chapter one is Lily uh, investigating a report of a drowned young woman at the pond at the amusement park, the Argonne Forest Park. And of course, there isn't one. The person who's reported this is an elderly lady who has the site. She keeps showing up at Lily's office saying, there's a drowned girl in the pond at my grandson's park that's going to open tomorrow, July 4th. And of course, if you go tell a sheriff that, the sheriff has to go investigate. So Lily's already been out like three, four times. And so far... She thinks, huh, is this elderly lady having delusions? Does she really have the sight? What's happening here? So I wanted to kind of set up the tension of what was going to happen both with this young girl and this elderly lady's vision. When you first started the first book, did you have a bunch of 
books in the series kind of loosely plotted out? Anything in mind? Or have these all just truly evolved as you've been writing? <laughs> uh, I'm chuckling because when I finished The Widows, I thought I'd written standalone. I had zero books plotted. I had, you know, I, I, and each book does actually stand alone on its own. Readers can read them um, without reading the other ones, but I think they all, they also obviously work as a series. But no, I thought The Widows was a book by itself. And then my wonderful editor said, well, do you realize what a great cast of characters you've created and what a world you've built in this kind of, you know, it's in a remote area, but it's it's this full world. And I truthfully answered, no, I didn't realize that. And then I thought about it and I thought, gosh, I really do have a huge cast of characters and a lot I can work with from the 1920s and how those events and issues uh, and themes play out in a rural area rather than in a big city. And then she said, you know, I want to know more about these characters, and I think readers would too. At which point I thought, oh boy, I'd better come up with something. (laughs) Because I really, I had, you know, and at the end of that conversation, what we knew was that the next book would have Sheriff Lily and a co-narrator, and it would be set in 1926. That's it. That's all I had, which isn't a lot to go on. But I started doing some research about 1926 and found out about the WKKK and that that was sufficient to get my imagination going with what became the hollows. And then from there, I did start planning out, okay, how are these folks going to interact and what are their relationships and how will they mature or not as time goes on? So now I do think long term, but at first I did not. Well, you know, we have to ask the nosy question, like how far out are you plotted now? Or when you're writing a current (laughs) book and you have all these ideas for future books, maybe how do you keep track of that? What's your process? So I went from one extreme to another. I went from, well, this is a standalone to, well, I better figure out where their lives are going. So I charted it out for the main characters and the kids because they, you know, they're growing up, right, through World War II, which <laughs> is a long, long time. But And I don't mean like I have a, an idea per year through World War II. What I have is whether, you know, let's say Lily never has to investigate another crime again because somehow nothing ever happens for her to investigate. Um, what are their personal lives like? How will they change? How will they grow? So that's what I have figured out through uh, through World War II. And I thought that was that was far enough for a couple of reasons. For one thing, that's a, a lot of years. And for another thing, that's when Appalachia really kind of changed, had a, had a big shift where there was a great sort of, diaspora out of Appalachia um, into, and in my family's case, went north to work in factories. And so that becomes a whole different feeling of Appalachia. So I thought that was far enough. And how I keep track is I I keep a spreadsheet. (laughs) I just have a spreadsheet called, you know, kinship characters. And then I also keep a Word document that, that I have detailed personality descriptions and background histories for each of the the main characters. So, wow. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Lots of documentation. We want to know when Esme (laughs) becomes the next sheriff. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great idea that I had not thought of, but I like it. (laughs) Well, you answered one of the questions that we had for you that came up in part from reading some of the marketing materials that calls you know, the 1920s, 
old Appalachia. Mm-hmm. So we were going to ask you, like, what does that mean? And what were the significant time periods for that region? And you've already mentioned how World War II impacted that. Yeah. You know, in your research about the region and, and those historical changes, what other ones stood out? Well, I'm drawing some of that from personal family history. So my family of origin um, is from one particular county in eastern Kentucky. And everyone (laughs) on both sides of the family, that's where they were from for generations until World War II and the end of World War II. And there just, you know, wasn't a lot of you know, the world was getting more modern and there wasn't a way to make a good living tobacco farming on government allotted plots that could only be so big based on how many kids you had in your family. You know, that's not a that's a substance way of living. That's not a way that makes it easy to provide a future for yourself or your kids. And so that's that's when, like I said, a lot of my aunts and uncles came north to work in factories. A few went south and worked. Um, I had an aunt, actually, who worked on getting telephone lines into Kentucky even through the 50s. So everybody kind of, at least in my family, kind of dispersed. And I think that's a big change. The other big change, at least for coal country, was the change in industry there where it just, you know, it wasn't nearly as productive after the Great Depression as it was up until then. It was already starting to wane a little bit as we get into the 20s, actually. So later in the 20s. Um, so that could be an issue to to look at as future books are developed. But so it's usually just big economic changes like that, that drive and change an area. Um, and I think it can be a beautiful but a challenging area to live in at any time. <laughs> mm-hmm. Jess, you do so much research, and it, it really shows in your books. But yet, the amusement park in the book, actually, <laughs> there's a funny way that you became enamored of amusement parks. Can you tell the listeners about that? Sure. Um, and to be clear, when we're talking about an amusement park in the context of the 20s and the Echoes. We're not talking about roller coasters or even merry-go-rounds or bumper cars. We're talking like light, what we would think of as maybe light, gentle amusements. You know, a fishing pond, a swimming hole, archery, a shooting range, which I find a dubious choice um, given that it was, you know, for veterans of of a war, but which... I don't know that they thought about how that might be triggering for for some of the people who attended, but it becomes a plot point in the Echoes. Um, A dance floor, a little camping area, those kinds of amusements. And the way I found out about those types of amusement parks was years and years ago, I went hiking with my husband and our two daughters who were then quite little in a park called Possum Creek, which is near where I live. And we're you know, just kind of going down this path and we look down and we think, huh, that doesn't look like a natural stone. It was part of an old dance floor. And then we go a little further and we find this sort of worn out sign that says, you know, this is where the Argonne Forest Park used to be. And then we go a little further and we see the remnants, kind of rusted out remnants of a of a streetcar that had been converted to like you could stay overnight at the amusement park in the streetcar. So I started researching, um, and this was in the late 1990s. So this has been echoing, if I can say that, in my head for quite a while. I found out that indeed this park had been built by a man 
who was a veteran of the Great War. And it was in memory of his friend who died at like 10 o'clock in the morning on November 11th. So he had one hour <laughs> before the official end of the war. And they'd already kind of called a ceasefire. But I, I guess a German sniper hadn't gotten the word and this poor man died. And the, um, the veteran came back and it took him a while. But by around 1928, he created this, he created this park. And uh, I got to interview his nephew, who even, you know, was quite elderly by then, but remembered being there as a kid and how cool it was and how much fun it was. And, and basically the park kind of hung in there until World War II, when gas rationing made it really hard for people to justify spending money to, you know, on gas to drive to this park. So the park kind of, you know, went out of business and kind of got eaten back up by the forest. <laughs> and eventually that part of the county became Possum Creek and they must have discovered the same remnants I did. And so that's always kind of stuck with me, sort of interesting to me and very touching that, and I, I thought it was very interesting that the fellow who developed this park named it after the very battle that he had fought in and that his friend had died in. It's called the Muse Argonne Offensive. He named his park the Argonne Forest Park after the Argonne Forest. And I felt like, I mean, I don't know because it's lost to time, but I'm assuming he felt like, you know, I'm going to flip this on its head. This word is going to be that this place that we all fought in is going to, we're going to, you know, have a place that's kind of similar-ish terrain, but in, in a way that's healing and joyous. And I thought that was kind of cool. So that stuck with me all these years. And the stills, which we talked about earlier, was set in the winter, the deep, deep winter of 27. And so, you know, with this book being set in 1928, I thought, I don't want to write about snow anymore. So <laughs> I'm going to set it in the middle of summer. And that made me think July 4th. And then that made me think of this part. It's great. It's like a character in and of itself. I really enjoyed that aspect. Oh, good. Thank you. You mentioned directly PTSD, and then also mm -hmm. you kind of alluded to it with the, the shooting range and how that mm -hmm. might not exactly help healing uh, mm -hmm. for people who've been in combat. Can you talk a little bit about your, you know, the importance for you to include PTSD, not mm -hmm. just for war veterans, but there are different types um, within the mm -hmm. novels themselves? Yeah. Yeah. I I wanted to include that. I think it's an aspect of war that you cannot just overlook. Um, my father was a World War II vet. He was a Browning automatic rifle man in France. And, you know, for anybody who knows military history, you would know that it's a miracle that he survived and that therefore I'm here. Because <laughs> he was he was on the front lines. And he too lost his um, assistant gunner, was killed by a sniper right next to him, which I didn't know for years and years. When I was a kid, uh, in the 70s, I was a late in life baby. I would hear him kind of scream out every now and then at night. And I didn't know what that was about until and I was in my 30s. And he said, Oh, yeah, you know, I still dream about, you know, fighting in World War II. Well, by then, you know, that's decades prior. And then, you know, later, even later in life, he said, he said to me, he was probably in his early 90s. You know, I hear about PTSD. I think maybe I've, I've had that. Maybe I still, I don't dream, I don't have as nightmares as often as I did, but I still do every now and then. Maybe I've had that. And I was really 
touched by that, you know, his whole life. Because he fought in that war between the ages of like 19 and 22. He died when he was 94. So this haunted him for the remaining 70 some years of his life. And I kind of grew up in a chaotic childhood. (laughs) And like you say, there are different forms of PTSD. I've been diagnosed with PTSD as well. And, you know, I'm, I'm fine. I cope with it. It's, it is what it is. But it got me to thinking about how traumatic events, whether it's war, an accident, um, you know, abuse, whatever, can, can stay with a person and echo in their lives, but also, you know, in the lives of people around them. How does that echoing in your own life affect the people that you have relationships with? And so I really, I really wanted to explore that. And we do have a character named Hiram in this novel who fought with Roger, Lily's older brother. Hiram was a friend of theirs who went off with a lot of young men to this battle in the Great War, along with Lily's husband, who's the deceased sheriff, and Lily's current love interest also fought in this war. So all four of these men had fought in this battle, which is very realistic because it was a huge battle. There were so many, it was like 1.2 million men fought in this battle. It was big. (laughs) Um, and a lot of the soldiers came from from this area. So it was interesting to kind of try to look at, well, you know, different people deal with that in different ways. You know, some people can shake it off easier than others. And it's it's not a it's not a moral like, oh good, you know, look how much tougher you are. It's just based on who you are and what your personality is. And so I wanted to include a character named Hiram who um who didn't deal with it as much as he maybe could have. He pushed it back in his head and it comes back to haunt him. Um, and that plays out in the book too. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that and for sharing your, you know, your personal experience, your dad's personal experience. You know, I know with PTSD, it can be really kind of insidious because it, it hits people at different times. You know, there's the writer, Carl Marlantes, who talks, uh, he fought in Vietnam and didn't have, you know, any quote problems for decades until I think it was like 30 years after the war, he had this huge flashback while he was driving down uh-huh. the road, um, which kind of split things open for him in a lot of different ways. Um, so I, I think it's important for listeners to know that. Yeah. And I, I have to admit, you know, for years, I said, you know, even after I was initially diagnosed, I said, no, I, I don't. I don't have PTSD. What are you talking? You know, I've got my life together. I've got a happy marriage, great kids, great career. Um, I just didn't. And, and I also said, you know, I have never served in the military. And my therapist said, okay, but there are different kinds. Um, and so eventually I accepted this. I was probably the last person uh, to accept it. <laughs> Everybody else was like, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, Jess. <laughs> I I was a little reluctant at first to be honest about that in the uh, author's note at the end of the echoes. But then I got to thinking about how, you know, we need to be open and honest about with, within our comfort zone. Not everybody wants to be or needs to be. But within our comfort, comfort zone, you know, we need to share um, our experiences to help other people who have similar experiences. Definitely. And and I have to admit, I mean, the, the author's note was really meaningful to me and really helped me understand the title more. You know, uh, I was really good. like, I asked when I ended the book, I was like, the echoes, I'm not really sure I get the title. And then when I read the author's note, it all clicked. So I think that's really oh, important. Good. Yeah. Good. 
And, you know, I think Lily has PTSD also. You know, I mean, there's mm-hmm. so many different forms of PTSD in the book. So I thought it was yeah. great that you talked about that at the end. Yeah, and she's she has has a a bow, a love interest uh, in this book. It's now been four, let's see, almost four years since her husband died. And so it, it's not like, not, you know, right after her husband dies, she finds another person that she's interested in. So there, there's been some time, but but she's has to kind of deal with the fact that um, it could be 30 years and she might still, and she will still love, you know, her first husband who, who was murdered. Um, and, you know, how does she balance that with, you know, being a human being who wants to go on and live life? So, yeah, she definitely gets to deal with some of that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. And forgive me if if you mentioned it in the very beginning, but uh, the character of Lily is based on an actual real life sheriff. I don't know. I know we yes. talked about that in past conversations with you, Jess, um, but can you just... Um, let listeners know a little bit about Maud Collins. Sure. Yeah, we, we didn't talk about that at the beginning, so I'm glad you asked. Yes, Lily's inspired by Maud Collins, who uh, became Ohio's first female sheriff in 1925 when her husband was killed in the line of duty. Uh, he was the sheriff of Benton County, Fletcher Collins, and there was no mystery about why he or how he died. He was shot by a guy who did not want to be served a traffic warrant, essentially. Um, there were witnesses, Lily, Lily, Maud had to uh, testify at the killer's trial. Um, so there was, there was no mystery about it at all. But I thought, what an intriguing woman. <laughs> and that's where, that's where the character Lily diverges from the real life Maud. So, you know, Lily's inspired by her, but these books are by no means Maud's personal story. I think it's worth noting that since Maud, there have been four female sheriffs. There was uh, one in 1976, one in um, 2016, and two elected in 2020. So 88 counties in the great state of Ohio, 200 plus year history, and we've had five female sheriffs. There have been assistant sheriffs and or, I mean, deputy sheriffs, police chiefs, police officers. So, you know, women have worked in law enforcement, but it's still really unusual. I think one of the current female sheriffs was quoted as saying, and and I'm going to get these numbers wrong, but of all the thousands upon thousands of sheriffs there are in the United States, 60 are female. So it's still a really rare job for a woman to be the sheriff. And um, I always love to throw in this anecdote. One of the two female sheriffs elected in 2020 happened to be lesbian, and she had been a deputy sheriff, and her boss did not like that she was gay and out, and so he found an excuse to fire her. And she said, fine, I'm going to run against you. And she did in um, one of the most conservative counties in the state of Ohio, in, in the Cincinnati area, and she won. And I just... I love that. Like, yay. Yeah. (laughs) So progress happens slowly, but it does happen. And um, yeah, it's just fascinating to me to think, you know, there are only 60 60 female sheriffs in this year, 2022, in the U.S. And, you know, Maude being sheriff in 1925. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing to think about. 
Yeah, that sure is. That's, that's really mm-hmm. some great statistics. And, yeah. and it is completely legal to fire people in America and at least 29 states for being gay or lesbian, trans. That's just wrong. Yeah, I mean, it is. So lots of progress being made for sure and, and more to, more And to many, much more we need. Yeah, yeah for, sure. Need for sure. Yeah. Well, are we allowed? I know we're here talking about number four, the echoes. <laughs> are we allowed to ask you about number five? Sure, you're allowed to ask me anything. <laughs> um, so number five, I, well, I'm, I'm actually taking a little break from kinship and uh, working on an historical suspense novel. Um, and we'll see, it's in early stages, so we'll see how it goes. But I'm really excited about the idea. And I think uh, readers of the kinship series would end up loving this. It's again inspired by a true piece of history that's sort of eyebrow raising, like, oh, really? That happened? Um, <laughs> so I don't want to say much more than that, but I'm excited to to be working on it. Oh, very cool. Hmm. Oh, can we put you on the hot seat for, for sure. a question about genre? Um, because Emily yeah. and I, we've talked a bit before about the differences between different subgenres. And so like mm-hmm. with thrillers, it's my understanding that's usually a story about beating the clock. And mm-hmm. then a mystery is about solving a past crime. But mm-hmm. what exactly is suspense? That's one that we have kind mm-hmm. of been wishy-washy about or not wishy-washy, well, squishy? squishy? Yeah, about. not quite understanding. <laughs> <Squishy>. <laughs> so let's see. So I would say suspense is... There can still be a ticking clock. I think of thriller as more, um, you kind of know who the bad guy is and, you know, you're you're going after the known serial killer before that serial killer strikes again, for example. Or maybe it's a political thriller where there's an assassin and you have to protect somebody from the assassin or find the assassin. Whereas suspense is a standalone novel um, and, Maybe you know there's a serial killer, but you don't know who it is. So you're trying to solve it in that way. Or it can be domestic suspense where, you know, it's, oh, where's some, Jessica Strauser is a great example of um, her her earlier books of um, domestic suspense. Catherine McKenzie, I'm reading her novel right now called I'll Never Tell. And it's set at a uh, camp. Um, it was a family-owned camp, and the siblings have all gathered because the parents have died, and they're trying to figure out, you know, h- who killed a camper years before, um, because it's one of the kids, but that you don't know which kid, and it's told in third person. So, so it and the will is set up that they have to, they kind of have to figure this out. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. So it's a great premise. So that's suspense. Like, right. You know, there's somebody who there was a crime, but it's I think usually a mystery. The the crime happened, you know, happens on the page or is referred to on the page, you know, somewhere in the first few chapters. Whereas in suspense, like in this case, and again, it's called I'll Never Tell. um, it, It happened like 20 years before. So, yeah, it's, it's just an intriguing, intriguing premise. And I think the setup for suspense is more, um, how are they going to get out of this situation rather than necessarily the focus being um, who, who killed this person in chapter three. Right. <laughs> Very cool. Thank you for that. That, that offers I, I call clarity. that one creepy. Yeah. That's what I call that one. 
Yeah, it's, it's good. I have this image of them like sitting around the campfire. Is it you? Is it you? <laughs> yeah, it's it's good. <laughs> so, do, are you um, are you taking a break from kinship because you read about this idea and it just intrigued you so much? You know, you couldn't place it in kinship, or or did you yeah, just literally yeah, want is, to break? A, yeah, it's a little bit of both. Um, give give readers some time to catch up <laughs> on yeah. the kinship series. I feel like they just start. You know, the widows just came out, and yet here we are talking about book four. Um, and also, yes, this is a an idea that could not take place in uh, the, the setting of kinship. Um, and if I get ideas, that's actually one of the first things I ask myself is. Could this happen in the world that you've already created? If so, let's let's you know keep it there. Um, but every now and then, I you know come across an idea, and I think, um, no, that's not going to work in 1920s Appalachia under Lily's watch. So, yeah, this is an idea that kind of grabbed, which was true of the widows, an idea that grabbed me by the throat, said, "You're going to work on me," <laughs> and that's what this idea is. So this seemed like good timing to just, you know, four books in to just, you know, take a little pause and and see see where this idea takes me. Oh, we'll be cool. standing good. by. Yeah, something to look forward to. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. Jess, thank you so much for stopping by to talk to us about the Echoes. I really loved it. I highly recommend to listeners. I agree that they're all standalones, but, you know, it's only four books in. So if you haven't had a chance to start... Go back to number one. Yeah. It's worth it. There you go. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Great summer reads. For yes, sure. they yeah. are. They are. Thank Any time you of the so year. much. Thanks, Jess. All right. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then, come chat with us on social media. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, we would love to have you join our community. All of the books that we talked about in this episode are listed in the show notes, which you can find at bookcougars.com. Each book will link to our bookshop.org page where your purchase will help support not only the book cougars, but also independent bookstores everywhere. And if you're an audiobook listener, we do have a special offer from libro.fm. You can find all of this information on our website. Again, that's bookcougars.com. Thanks, everybody. This episode is edited by Pat Keogh Sound Design.